This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. I was recently joined by Dr. Shauna Pandya, who's a trained neurosurgeon, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and a citizen astronaut. She and I had a conversation covering innovations within medicine, in particular around its use of virtual reality and the significant medical challenges for long-term spaceflight. It's an outstanding conversation. But then we pivot to something completely different but relevant, the importance of resilience, a topic Shauna knows very well. In her 2016 TED Talk, she starts the conversation off by saying, I am an absolute disgrace. I think you'll be fascinated by the discussion. So join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Dr. Shauna Pandya, thank you for coming on the show. I'm, I'm so grateful. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's going to be a really fun conversation, and I'm really excited to see where we go. I am too. Our our uh, audience is going to be surprised to see this is not our regular uh, studio. We, um, uh, I was, I, I'm always looking for topics, especially topics in the intersection of technology and human flourishing, and. So that could be material science, it could be medicine, it could be whatever, cybersecurity. And one of the um, places that I ended up on was innovation in medicine. Mm-hmm. And in particular, as we're pushing extreme environments, space being one of them. And I and my team came across your name. And I was like, oh, this looks really interesting. Then we discovered you're at this thing called Humans to Mars yep. Summit, which is where we're at now. Yep. And we got in contact with the organizers and they said, well, why don't you grab your stuff and come up here? And you graciously agreed to say, well, I can carve off a little bit of time and come and see you. And so now we've got you trapped in this nondescript room <laughs> with an unusual setup. But thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure to be here live from an undisclosed location. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot this hour. So, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's dive see. In. Yeah, let's dive into it. All right. Well, I want to start off with um, one of the things, uh, kind of an amalgamation of different things you've said, but just cracks me up because our audience will have know, known, uh, will know from my intro, th- among many things uh, of your background, which is pretty remarkable. I double dog dare them to fact check me on these things. Um, but you're a trained um, neurologist, neuroscientist, neurosurgeon. And you're in this field of space exploration, among other things. And I have this um, uh, this sentence written down that just cracked me up when you said it, or, or a version of this, which is, space is hard, space is expensive, and it's trying to kill us. <laughs> so why, knowing what you know about human beings, um, would this be attractive to you and why would you dive into this field? Yeah, um, that's, that's a great question. And actually, um, this whole background in neuroscience and neurosurgery where I started and actually didn't end up is, is part of that story. And mm. so, um, like a lot of kids, especially, you know, if you're here at the human to Mars summit, I wanted to be an astronaut when mm-hmm. I grew up and I 
did not grow out of that dream. And so, you know, as, as a kid, you're trying to be strategic, like, how do I get to space? And so I grew up in the 90s when Canada's first ever female astronaut, Dr. Roberta Bondar, went to space. And I mm. said, okay, well, she's Canadian, I'm Canadian, she's female, I'm female, she's a girl guide, I'm a girl guide, so now all I need to do is go be a neuroscientist, physician, and then boom, astronaut. And like, in your in your mind, you know that's that's of how it, that's how it happens. You know, just that's just three <laughs> things. So you know that's that's what spurred me to start studying um, neuroscience. That was what I did my uh, for my undergraduate degree, and then I applied to medical school. Um, but somewhere along the way, I remembered this this space dream, and um, I applied to ne- medical school as well as. Um, the International Space University for my master's in mm. space studies um, in the same year because, you know, I thought, well, oh, medicine's so competitive. What if I don't get in? Um, you know, I want to spend the year doing something as amazing as medical school would be. Um, and to my surprise, I got into both. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was the first hard, good, hard decision I had to make in my young adult life. Um, but I decided to see, well, you know, there's a saying that says, if you have two choices, why not pick both? Right. So I decided to try that out. I asked the medical school if they would grant me a deferral. I was very lucky and they said yes. And off I went to um, the International Space University in Strasbourg, France, which is like Starfleet Academy come to life. Right. Um, and that's when I first, you know, got my, this real sense of what you can do with space as a career. Um, you know, you learn about space policy, technology, engineering, law, and importantly, space life sciences and medicine. Um, and that's when I realized, oh my gosh, space is trying to kill us. You know, you're sending humans into this austere environment that's full of um, radiation um, exposure compared to what increased radiation that you would see compared to what you would um, be experience on Earth. Um, you're, we decompensate our bones, our muscles, our fluids. You know, they act differently in microgravity or zero G. Um, you're not used to your creature comforts in space. You're isolated. Mm. You're confined. You, there's no there's no Starbucks in space. <laughs> uh, there's no Mars bucks on Mars right. yet. Right. Um, you know, there's these altered day-night cycles. So 16 day-night cycles per 24 hours on the International Space Station. Um, there's everything else that falls under hostile environments. So increased dust exposure on the moon. Um, the further out you go, the longer the communication delay is. So by the time you get to Mars, it could be a six to 46 minute round trip delay. Mm. Um, so that's why we say space is trying to kill us. Mm. Um, and so I got into this, um, I w- first got into this when I was lucky enough to intern at the European Astronaut Center through the European Space Agency. And I worked at the Crew Medical Support Office. And I was like, oh my God, this is this is incredible. Right. Like, it's like being, um, you know, a kid in space Disneyland. Right. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what fueled the first first love of, oh, my gosh, I could make this part of my medical career. Um, and then I, um, you know, kept up that, that passion as I went through medical school. Um, my second year research project was, you know, that Venn diagram of space technology, neuroscience, medicine. And I got to do research on a very cool project called NeuroArm. So called, I'm sorry, called what? NeuroArm. What's that? So this is um, space listeners may be familiar with Canadarm, and so that's that robotic arm that okay, uh, sure. Canada that Canada supplies um, that performs robotic work outside the International Space Station, right. and so this was made by the same company, MDA, um, using the same technologies, but it was used for 
brain surgery. Mm. And um, it was in my backyard. It was in Alberta. I lived in Edmonton. I just, um, you know, had to go down to Calgary where the neurosurgeon who developed this was working on it. And so I heard of this and I was like, oh my God, this is everything I'm passionate about. Space technology, neuroscience, medicine. I said, do you need a medical student for research? Um, he said, yeah, let's apply for a grant. And then um, we, we um, I spent the summer doing research on this this robot that could perform brain surgery and offer advantages like operating at a smaller scale, filtering out um, tremors, um, you know, uh, being locked on a single axis. Whereas humans, you know, we're, we're good. We have lots of range of motion in our hands, but, mm. you know, we still we still have tremor. We still mm-hmm. make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really, really cool to bring those loves together. Um, and that's kind of what fueled um, this love of, of uh, neuroscience and of initially starting off in neurosurgery. Um, and that's a whole long story that we can talk about as well. Um, and today, though, I've ended up in uh, emergency medicine, primary care, and, you know, get to continue on um, learning about, researching about um, how space is trying to kill us um, and also figuring out how we retire risk. So mm-hmm. we can certainly also talk about the, we've talked about how space is trying to kill us. Mm-hmm. We can talk about how um, space is risky and space is expensive too, but that's kind of the the long version of why I say that because, right. you know, space, space flight isn't easy. If it, if it were, everyone would do it. You know, if in, I've been around the space industry for a long time, um, certainly the aerospace industry. I've got family that have worked directly and indirectly for a station and shuttle and a number of the programs. I don't think I knew there was an international space university. If if somebody says medical school, I think the whole world knows medical school and the different disciplines. How cool is that? I feel like though kind of space nerds are keeping this as a best kept secret. <laughs> like we don't want to get it flooded by all the muggles we just want this to ourselves <laughs> you know it's it's actually uh, pleasantly surprisingly the op- the opposite of that so the thing i love about space and the space industry is that you know you're here because you're passionate you want to do hard things and um isu it was no different so there's um this was you know about 15 years ago when i went there was a master's program there was a summer a nine-week summer program now they have i think they've expanded into an mba program and a phd program. Um, But the rule is, um, you know, they're very passionate about what we need in the space industry, which is collaboration and cooperation. So they abide by this three I philosophy, international, intercultural, interdisciplinary. So, you know, every week you're working on a different project. You're working in our year, we had 50 students from 31 countries. You're working with engineers, you're working with law and policy experts. And one, one week it can be, um, you know, figure out how to launch this uh, lunar orbiter into a translunar orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, the next week, it might be a policy issue. Um, and so you're really learning to jive with all of these different styles to achieve a really big goal. Um, and then the other part of it is, you know, you're in Europe. Um, you're in Strasbourg, right on the French-German-Swiss border. You know, you you your field trips are site visits to, you know, some of the biggest aerospace right. companies um, in, in Europe. You know, for our spring break, we got to go to Moscow, to Russia, um, to Star City. Um, you know, we got to sit in a replica Soyuz capsule. So it was, you know, uh, an out-of-this-world experience, but on terra firma. Right. Well, I guess if you're into, you know, gorgeous beauty, um, that, that sort of thing, that'd be really cool, but it, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, West Texas pretty. So I, <laughs> I'm teasing, of course I, um, 
you know, there's, there's so many places to go, but I, I want to come back just for a minute to um, when you think of hazards and you you laid a few of them out there, I, it reminds me of one of the things I, I remember learning in school was for the ancient world, probably the scariest part of their earth experience was deep water, getting off, getting off shore. It wasn't so much, you know, the the heavens weren't even considered really by population. It was getting away from the shore because of what was hidden in the water and the deep and all the mythology around that and the occasional, you know, monster that broke the surface. Um, but, but I didn't see the same sort of, and maybe that's just my limited reading sort of, um, trepidation going to the stars. In fact, almost when I, of the astronauts that I've met or some of the things that I've looked, it's almost like yearning to, you know, how do we go explore? But for sure, whether, whether that fear is there or not, but there's this, in spite of the risk, it's almost like Navy pilots trying to figure out how do we land on a carrier? How do we, you know, how do we accomplish these things? How do I get in a deep sea submersible and just push the boundary knowing I don't have all of the questions solved about pressure or the um, uh, air mix, oxygen mix that I'm going to need and what the consequences are for coming up to the surface. In your, as we kind of move into the hazards, have you found that explore spirit regardless of the, you know, what part of earth you meet these folks, it seems to resonate. Yeah, that's, you know, we're getting, we're getting philosophical here, but I think it's a really important point of what it means to be human. And I think curiosity and that need to say, what's beyond this? Hey, what happens if I do that? Um, You know, is, is really part of what it means to be part of the human experience. And I think the two most powerful questions, you know, we can ask as humans is what if, you know, mm-hmm. what if I go beyond? What if I explore this? What if, you know, uh, space didn't have to be risky and try to kill us? You know, how do we mitigate that? And so as, um, you know, it, building on that curiosity and then saying, okay, this is a high-risk environment, whether you're talking about the high seas or outer space or deep space. Um, okay, so it's it's expensive, but uh, it's it's risky. It's trying mm-hmm. to kill us. What, what if, you know, we could mitigate that somehow? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other part of that is, you know, there's this famous saying by one of the Canadian astronauts, Chris Hadfield. He says, no one goes to, no astronaut prepares for space with his fingers crossed or her fingers crossed <laughs> saying, right. I hope this goes well. Right. It's about cataloging those risks and mitigating and retiring those risks. Right. And so um, I like to think about it like the engineers do. And so if there's any engineers who are listening out there, you know, they'll be very familiar with the concept of a risk matrix, right? right? And it's, you know, on one axis, you have the probability of something happening versus the um, severity if that happens. Mm -hmm. And if something's high probability, high severity, then it's mission critical and it needs to be retired before you can go forward with your mission. Whereas if it's low risk and low severity, you probably don't dedicate resources towards retiring that. So then coming back with that framework towards the space medicine world in the space agency world, whether you're talking about NASA or the European Space Agency or the Canadian Space Agency, it starts with selection. Mm. Um, I like to say that the the path towards becoming a governmental space agency astronaut is littered with the hopes and dreams of medically disqualified <laughs> candidates. Um, and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of famous reasons or infamous reasons why people have been told 
that they can't uh, apply anymore or that they've been medically disqualified, whether it's having kidney stones that they didn't know about, whether it's, you know, being colorblind, um, having like a thyroid condition. Um, so there's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just can be disappointing. It can be, you know, dream shattering, but it's also part of retiring that risk because right. say, you know, say you're an insulin dependent diabetic <clears throat> and you have a, um, you know, you go into diabetic ketoacidosis on Mars, um, you know, to the point of being in a coma and needing to be in an ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, so until we create more of that infrastructure, if, until we ask that what if question of what if we could support all comers to space? What if we could build advanced life support capabilities mm-hmm. on the moon and Mars? Um, one of the ways that we keep humans alive and happy and healthy in space is retiring that risk before we even send humans um, to the great unknown. Um, one of the things that I thought about, I'm, I'm pretty sure in a previous conversation I've heard you say, Shauna, um, or discuss, was this idea of um, mitigating the risk And in particular, I was fascinated in the area of medicine. One of the risks is, for example, when you go through the protocol of um, surgeries, if somebody has not had their appendix removed, do we just auto do that or not had uh, their tonsils removed or whatever? Like there are, you know, and as I started thinking about that, I was like, you know, we don't usually do that for a cruise or whatever. I don't even know if they do that really in... um, like a special operations. Well, I was in an airborne unit. A lot of my friends helped start third ranger battalion a long time ago when we were young and, uh, uh, skinny. Um, but it was, uh, I don't remember it being that invasive, maybe for the most elite special operations teams they do, but that is for sure a consideration today because we don't have the ability yet to do at least easily a remote surgery, while you're in flight or whatever. Is that, did I understand that correctly? Yeah. You know, the, the discussion of appendectomies, prophylactic appendectomies is so fascinating. And so, um, you know, here's the scenario you don't want to get into. So in 1961, there was this Soviet physician, his name was Leonid Rogozov. And, um, you know, he had this pain in his right lower quadrant. He tried to walk it off for a few days. He started feeling worse and worse. He gave himself some antibiotics, didn't work. And finally he bit the bullet and said, that's my appendix. I have appendicitis and I'm the only crew physician. I'm in Antarctica. There's no medivac. Um, so he realized that if he was to not die, um, not jeopardize um, the mission, he was going to have to take out his own appendix. Uh, and, you know, so, some versions of the story goes that he had an assistant um, hold the retractor and the mirrors who then went vasovagal, fainted and was totally useless for the rest of the surgery. <laughs> um, but for those of who are not of the faint of heart, just Google, um, you know, Antarctic physician removes appendix. And there's this very impressive but gory setup of this young, brave, brazen physician with a setup of mirrors and surgical instruments taking out his own appendix. Um, And he was talented. He had the skill set. He managed to take out his own appendix. But now imagine trying to do that on Mars. Imagine you run into a complication. Imagine you've missed the rupture and you have a ruptured appendix. Imagine that you nick an artery and you run into bleeding. You don't want to be the guy that's dealing with your own appendectomy um, complication. They say that the doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient. Right. and so then this gets into the sur- the question of what, that what we were just discussing. How do you mitigate risk? Yeah. And so um, what has happened, um, 
is that the the spaceflight community, um, some well-known names in space medicine in 2012, got together and wrote this really fascinating paper uh, called prophylactic appendectomy on deep space missions. Is, is it worth the risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really, you know, goes into, hey, you know, it, we don't want to have anyone take on an appendix on Mars. Should we just take them out before they go? Um, you know, well, what are the complications of that? You, you create scar tissue. You could um, put the astronauts at risk of getting a bowel obstruction on right. Mars. And, you know, Chris Hadfield talks about that in his book. Um, and then they talk about, well, is there precedent for that? Is that unethical to put them to the risk of surgery? And by way of precedent on Earth, we look at a Chilean Antarctic settlement called Via Las Estrellas. Mm. And they are so remote from medical care. They are hundreds of miles from medical care that the rule is if you want to live in this Antarctic settlement, you have to have anyone over age six has to have their appendix out. Mm. And then, you know, coming to exactly what you were saying is um, I'm coming to you fresh from the uh, FDNY, the New York Fire Department Special uh, Operations or sorry, Medical Special Operations Conference. And it was really interesting to hear about what goes on on military deployments and um, uh, what kind of medical issues they run into in these really austere, resource limited environments. And, you know, combat related trauma is a part of it. But they actually ran into a lot of medical issues and appendicitis. Mm. So, you know, the question is, like, how do you retire risk in a way that doesn't open up another can of worms of medical risk uh, unto itself? So, you know, there's if there's if there's a question about uh, medical management on Mars, I'm sure there's people discussing it. And appendectomies have certainly been part of that discussion. I I almost want to we're not going to, but I almost want to run down this rabbit hole of Ethics. We just had um, Dr. Uh, Paul Root Wolpe. In fact, I think we're publishing his uh, his podcast this week. He was the first bioethicist for NASA, uh, director of bioethics for them. He is a tenured professor of ethics mm-hmm. at Emory University in Atlanta. Keeps in um, just uh, 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 biotech, um, just a wide range, artificial intelligence. Um, conversation for another day. Here's my question, I guess. In my world today, I meet with a lot of people that talk about virtual reality, Mm -hmm. augmented reality, Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, and the ability to treat things on earth Mm -hmm. and learn. Mm -hmm. Is there a place in your world in the medical research and, and, and mitigating risks using tools like this, whether it's um, what we're talking about, which is the emergency surgery, but or uh, you know the preemptive surgery, but just in the next phase, things that we can't that are a low probability, but they still happen. How can we leverage tools like this uh, to help us? Yes. The, so the short answer is yes. And as an aside, um, we absolutely should go down the rabbit hole because there's CPR guidelines for what happens if you have a cardiac arrest in space. Um, so we can certainly talk about okay. that. But with respect to your current question, um, yeah, there's a huge role for technologies for keeping us surviving and thriving on the moon, Mars and beyond. And, you know, as, as a disclosure, I work for a medical VR, AR company. Um, and we do, we have done work for the Canadian Space Agency, okay. as well as medical um, uh, 
healthcare workers who are learning um, training on Earth. Um, and so, for example, using the case of virtual reality, augmented reality, 360 video, um, imagine, you know, the the use case of you have a crew medical officer and they have the same level of training as the International Space Station CMO, crew medical officer, um, which is 40 hours mm-hmm. of, of medical training. So say you learn to put an IV in a patient on Earth and then you go to the Red Planet and you touch down nine months later and you haven't practiced that skill in all that time. Mm. Um, and now you have to insert an IV in your, your crewmate. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably going to miss your, you know, your, your patient's going to look like a pincushion. Um, so how do you keep up those medical skills? Right. Um, and so what we've done for the Canadian Space Agency is create this whole sepsis training module where you can um, practice hands-on skills like lines, IV insertions, um, intubations for astronauts on deep space missions so they can retire some of that risk. So they mm. avoid skills degradation. Um, and you also meet the challenges of packing for space. So, you know, you have something that's um, lightweight, low volume, radiation resistant, easy to use, has a long shelf life and not too onerous or time intensive to use. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of the paradigms that we talk about when we're um, packing for space. Um, And then the other use case is, well, especially in the era of COVID, when we don't have use uh, or access to our traditional training facilities like mm-hmm. a learning lab or a sim lab, there's a huge use case for um, VR, AR for for training, for skills maintenance, for certification. And so that's, you know, the other um, subset of people who use um, VR for medical skills training. And then you were also asking about augmented reality and yeah. you're, you're referring to what we call to as a just-in-time guidance. So... Um, Take the take the case where you have one crew physician and that's it. You don't have any other medical people on your crew right. and the physician is the one who was injured on a um, exploratory um, excursion outside the habitat on Mars. So on an EVA or ex, uh, extravehicular activity. Um, so they're, they're out cold. They're of no use to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly you need to learn how to perform CPR or run a code or use principles of advanced cardiac life support. And maybe you underwent the training on Earth, but you just can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so use mixed reality, use augmented reality to pull up those algorithms in front of you. So you can say, okay, we're, we're doing, you know, two minutes of good chest compressions, and then we're going to prepare to give our first dose of epinephrine. And then this will tell us, you know, what drug to give, what dose to give, and, you know, can help guide you when, when chaos is all abounds. Mm. So that's one example of how we can use emerging technologies to keep humans, um, healthy and thriving and surviving, um, on, on deep space missions. And there's, there's so many examples out there, whether we're talking about um, artificial intelligence for helping the crew physician with diagnosing um, to more sci-fi and advanced concepts like human hibernation. There's people out there working on that. So um, this is why the field of space medicine is just so um, fascinating and so fun because you're really on that edge case of medicine. But, the, you know, regardless of what aspect um, of of human protection of health protection you're talking about, whether you're talking about virtual reality, human hibernation, or even genetic enhancement, which has its own ethical um, discussions. Right. Um, you know, someone is out there, has written that paper. Someone is out there thinking about that. And then the other part of that is, how do we bring those benefits back mm-hmm. to everyday medicine on earth? So we talked about VR for training on earth. Um, what about using what we learn about bone density loss and muscle mass loss and preventing that in space for those who have neuromuscular diseases mm-hmm. on earth. And in fact, from a rodent 
um, research project that came back from the International Space Station in 2019. They did exactly that. They they genetically engineered Mighty Mouse, these hefty, muscular, bulky, <laughs> adorable little mice um, who were more resistant to losing bone and muscle mass. They, and they, they engineered them up on the space station? or they were, they were engineered prior to flight. So they okay. sent up two groups of mice. One were these jacked up little Mighty Mice and one were normal mice. And then right. they introduced a neuromuscular blockade called the ACVR2 neuromuscular blockade. And what they found was the genetically augmented mice with the neuromuscular blockade had less bone density loss and less muscle mass. Um, So it made them more um, habituated and more... uh, I guess pliable and prone to do well in the spaceflight environment. Mm. But now look at those with like Duchenne's neuro, uh, neuromuscular dystrophy. Um, you know, maybe they can benefit from this research. Look at those with osteoporosis. Maybe they can benefit from this research. So, you know, you, you often hear from people like, well, why focus on space? You know, right. why waste these resources? It's right. not an either or phenomenon yeah. by any means. I completely agree. I mean, there, just pretty much any tech we have has either been contributed to, can be directly related to our space endeavor um, in so many ways. But I want to do two, uh, something else. Yeah. One is a comment on when you were talking about um, augmented reality and r- virtual reality, I've only had one um, incident where uh, a medical emergency happened right in front of me and my neighbor went into cardiac arrest uh, um, on a hot Georgia afternoon mowing his lawn and had to run over there and start CPR. And it had been 20 years since I did CPR. And I, and I had 911 on speakerphone and we were trying to do it. And when the fire department got there and really began doing CPR, there I was clearly not doing it anywhere near the way they were. There was nothing anybody could have done. It was such a massive heart attack. But mm-hmm. it just, when you're talking about augmented reality, if what... For people like me mm-hmm. to have that real time, whether it's choose, you know, your device is helping you to get the right medicine injected in the right thing, doing the right amount of pressure, not just a voice in your ear, which is helpful, which is much better than a hundred years ago, but to have those things to help you administer aid and know you're, you're performing to the best, you know, certainly according to the guidelines, that would have been spectacularly helpful um, when you're talking about jacked up mighty mouse, which I that cracks me up, I love that idea. One of the things that Dr. Wolpe said was he's a big proponent of all of these things that can help human beings, but he also raises a question, which is what I think an ethicist should do: When do we stop being human, or you know, to what percent? Um, and he, he he wasn't saying it in an antagonistic way. Mm-hmm. It was just you know. As we begin learning these things that we believe can help us, are we becoming the belters and the Martians or the yeah. Earth, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, from the expanse? Or like wh- whatever our noble intentions are, and history is full of noble intentions. One of his that he, I've heard him, I don't know if this is his belief, but I've heard him argue this. Why would we as human beings want to live for two or 300 years or get our consciousness into silicone? What are the unintended consequences in a conversation for another day? But when are, do the mice, are these genetically modified mice still mice? Mm-hmm. Are they modified mice? How would we categorize that? Or even uh, back to the ethical question, I'm imagining if I'm in a crew, 
as we see so many times in a science, you know, a sci-fi thing, uh, one of my favorite recent movies is The Martian. I love the book better. I don't just usually say that, but I, <laughs> I, I loved it, but the movie was still fantastic. But you just even hear them, the, the, the folks back on Earth wrestling with the dilemma. Do we let the crew know Watney's still alive? And, you know, how do we do that? And um, what should they do? And should they risk, do they have the right, um, to decide for themselves that we're all in and we're going to ignore NASA and we're going to go back. Like it's, it's such an interesting paradox, but I feel like they've been faced before when we were sailing, you taking Mediterranean ships out into the open ocean. You know, we've, we've faced ethical questions like this. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's so important to be aware of the ethics as we go into new territory. Um, the question I would add, um, you know, is, you know, where, where does this end? Where is the slippery slope? Like if we, you know, the, the one of the ethical arguments for genetically engineering humans for going to space is you're willingly sending them into this high-risk environment where there's high radiation, they're more prone to DNA damage. So don't you have an ethical imperative to protect them, to genetically enhance them? And I'm sure there would be those on saying, well, where's the line? Like, you know, we're still exposed to radiation every time we get in a commercial airline or every time we walk outside our houses, even right. on, uh, on Earth, you know, like, shouldn't we protect ourselves against that? Um, so there's definitely that, um, you know, ethical discussion that needs to be had. Um, and then the other part of it is, yeah, like how, what is the duty to inform? What is the duty to act? And then, um, you know, on the flip side of that, like, even if you do everything possible, is it, was that the right? Um, thing to do. And so coming back to the CPR guidelines and space paper that I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, this was put out by the European Society for Aerospace Medicine in the past year. And, you know, if you think about it, it starts to make sense. Like you, you do CPR and zero G as you would on earth and you go ricocheting to the other side <laughs> of the, of the space capsule. Right. Um, so, you know, you have to modify your technique a bit. You have to restrain yourself from the patient or you have to, you know, become like enmeshed around them so you can perform effective compressions. Right. Um, but say that happens on Mars and you have no medevac capability. Um, so then you've, you've essentially engaged in futility of care because mm. assume you get a pulse again, right. then what? Right. You have no life support capabilities. You have no ventilatory capabilities. Right. Um, so there's all of these ethical questions that also come with the science, with the exploration, and that are absolutely important to be asking from day one. Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Here, though, is where I take great encouragement our world right now is in a geopolitical uproar yes. for a variety of reasons. Yes. In the United States, we've had an election or two in the last few years that has caused um, uh, a uh, great deal of conversation and sometimes vitriol and whatever, regardless of how you find yourself in the States. Canada in the past six months has had its own share of, we don't like what this group's doing or whatever. And they've been pretty vocal about it. And very quietly, the International Space Station with people from all over the world, or in particular, Russians and Americans still working together in harmony mm -hmm. um, at the university example that you gave, working together, how do we with this common mindset, work together imperfectly because we're human beings, but we still work together and we find a way to move through, usually with a pretty good consensus. Um, I have hope that they, as they continue this exploration, they take it seriously. And, um, you know, that's sort of the spirit behind it. Yeah. You know, these are, these are very heavy 
geopolitical times, um, you know, domestically in the U.S. We're seeing echoes of that in Canada globally. And I remember the the day that the Russian invasion of Ukraine occurred. And I was, um, you know, just emailing back and forth with a uh, Astro MD buddy in the NASA office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said something that made me smile. And I don't even remember the context, but I just remember saying, like, you know, thanks for making me smile on a very difficult global day. Um, And then, you know, he was saying, yeah, it's it's a little bit uncomfortable right now, you know, as we as we talk about our ISS partners. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, as a as a Canadian who's outside all of this, like, what do I do? And he's like, you know, just keep spreading the word of collaboration and exploration. Um, And, you know, it was it was comforting because you think back to the historical precedent of, you know, how this has played out in space. And, you know, when we first sent humans to space, it wasn't because we wanted to explore and answer questions and, you know, go into the great beyond. It was a political race. It was mm. a Cold War. Right. Um, and that's where, you know, the Soviets and the, the U.S. first sent, you know, unmanned probes and then humans and then humans to the moon. Um, but amidst all of that, amidst all of those political tensions, there was a ray of hope. Yeah. There was the um, Apollo-Soyuz test project where, you know, the commanders of the Apollo and the Soyuz, they they met across space and they shook hands. And that was widely seen as this detente, this de-escalation of these Cold War tensions. Mm. So, you know, it's a matter of reframing, um, you know, no matter what situation we're in, you know, as, as, as horrible or as desolate or as stressful as situations um, can be, we should also look for opportunities to say, well, how can we how can we make this better? Mm-hmm. And I think space still holds a lot of promise for that. I agree. I think it's also the, um, and I don't mean this in any other way other than, at least in my imagination, the best possible way that explorer spirit or that warrior spirit, my, one of my favorite um, uh, sporting events to watch in particular is when a Federer in his prime and a Djokovic or a Nadal in their prime, these great tennis players, and they just war, mm-hmm. give it everything. They are committed to winning. They want to absolutely beat their opponent. And when they're done, win or lose, tears or no tears, they somehow come together and they, because they were the folks that battled, you know, they, within the boundaries of the competition, they did it. And, um, my dad was an engineer in that era, and we know a number of people um, uh, in the U.S. and outside the U.S. that were that were in and around that. Whether they, uh, um, I don't know anybody from outside the country that went to space. I know some inside, but they were. But we know people um, through our connections that have been part of this project, and they have a camaraderie. You know, there is a. Um, it's not that they they feel disloyal to their country. They just feel like this love of shared experience, and that. At their core, they're, um, they're explorers and how do we do it uh, with integrity? But there's a great deal of competition and I, and it's healthy, I think, to do it like that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you hit it on the nail with um, this this terminology around a shared experience because, you know, and you, you often see this in, in a variety of um, um, situations, whether you're talking about medical training and how brutal residency can be with military deployments, you know, sometimes um, people who are within these silos kind of pull back from their family a little bit. They don't relate as well, but they relate very well to someone, um, you know, um, 
within their uh, battalion or within their residency program, even though in a normal circumstance they may not get along. And it's it's kind of as you say, like there is that those bonds of of that shared experience that help you know build each other up. Yeah. So I want to shift gears because we're running out of time, and I, I know we don't have a lot of time. I'm gonna you know whatever time you can give us, but. When I f- first discovered you um, or listened to you, it was in this TED Talk from a number of years ago. And um, it makes me smile now because I've listened to it several times, especially meeting you in person, which just seems to be disconnected. And I love it because it's such a provocative way that you open that conversation. I wrote it down here, or at least the um, the line here, and I'd love for you to unpack it. So you've you've accomplished all of these things and you start off in the very beginning of that saying, I'm an absolute disgrace. I, by what measurement? I don't, can you help us to understand why did you do that Ted talk? And, um, well, let's just start there. Sure. Yeah. That's a great question. So to give that a little bit of context, so this is the 2016, um, Ted talk and, you know, I was asked to give it on whatever, any topic of my choosing, I'm sure they expected it to be about space and exploration. And that, that ended up being a later Ted talk, but, um, this one, you know, I was, I was in this place, you mentioned, you know, part of where I started off in my medical training, I started Mm -hmm. off in neurosurgery, which is brain and spine surgery and Mm -hmm. peripheral nerves. Um, I was three years into this and, you know, it really wasn't going, wasn't working out the way I wanted. Um, there were external factors, internal factors, um, that was just like this, this isn't right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was really um, coming to that realization and fighting to not deal with that reality. You know, you, you get at this disconnect with something that's ingrained with how you view yourself and your self-identity. Mm. And, you know, to give yourself and your listeners an idea of how ingrained that was, you know, my my yearbooks are filled with either you'll be a great neurosurgeon or see you in space, you know, mm. from, from high school and then from medical school. Um, you know, so you, you internalize this as this is who I am. And when you don't achieve what it is you set out to do, you know, it, in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. I'd failed. Um, and, you know, I w- it would get to the point where, you know, you're just it was like a very bad breakup. And I would look in the mirror and say, you know, I failed. Mm-hmm. I am an absolute disgrace with a few more colorful terms in there. <laughs> um and then, you know, you just, you start thinking about it. Um, I got in- introduced to this concept of resilience. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had no idea what it meant, but the, the, the residency um, coordinator, you know, she's saying, you have to learn to bounce back. You have to learn to be resilient. And I was like, well, what is this word? You keep right. saying, I don't understand it. Um, and so I started reading around it and this went into this whole rabbit hole. Um, and so I learned that there's a way to be hard on yourself in a way that's productive versus a way that's destructive. And I wasn't being productive. I was, you know, being hard on myself, but I wasn't learning anything. Mm. I wasn't moving forward. And this is where this idea of resilience or mental fortitude or mental toughness, um, Mm -hmm. grit, Mm -hmm. um, comes in. And so I was like, okay, well, let me, let me start by reading the Wikipedia article around this. You know, that's a good place to start. And then I started reading more and more about it. And then I kind of got to see it play out in real time. Um, because as I was figuring out what other area of medicine I wanted to be in, um, you know, I did all sorts of rotations, everything from forensic psychiatry with convicted sociopaths, you know, who'd committed horrific crimes and, you know, watching, you know, their journey to, um, working on a military base and, um, 
you know, seeing patients more with um, sports type injuries, but they would tell me about, you know, what they want to do with their career and say, oh, I want to go be part of special operations. And then right. that's kind of when this, this, this switch flipped because this is going to sound ridiculous to anyone in the military. Um, but in my mind, you know, living in this, as a civilian medical person, I was like, oh, this, this exists outside of like Rainbow Six or Call right. of Duty or, right. you know, it's, it's not just a video game thing. Like this, right. people actually do this for a living. Right. Um, and what really got me is they were telling me about selection and how tough it is and, you know, what, what, you know, Navy SEALs have to go through in their basic underwater demolition training. And so I started reading about that because I was like, yeah, those guys get it. Right. Yeah. They're the ones who I identify with that mental model. And what was really interesting where the resilience and the psychological um, resilience came into it is there's actually studies out there saying that those who score highest on the C-sort or the computerized special operations resilience test mm-hmm. are the ones who tend to make it through. It's mm-hmm. not the biggest or the right. toughest or the strongest. It's the ones who, you know, can stick it through. And that's, same, that's the same thing with Delta selection. You know, when they go on the long walk, um, 40 miles plus, they right. don't know how long they're out there, what the elements are going to bring. It's the ones who say, I'm okay with this uncertainty. And then the best part about this is, you know, you don't have to be aiming to be on SEAL Team 6. You don't have to aim to be an astronaut or a brain surgeon. Um, these aren't things you're born with. These mm-hmm. are traits that can be um, learned and applied. And there's multiple models out there, but the one I like is a five-component model of resilience. Um and it can be broken. It, it it essentially comes down to being able to break things down. So not saying I'm a failure, but this didn't go the way I wanted to. So let's right. let's dissect that a bit. Um, you know, mentally preparing yourself for good times and for bad t- bad times. Um, impulse control, resisting that urge to be hard on yourself, to give up. And mm. then also, you know, being a little bit kind to yourself, having that positive self-talk saying, okay, this didn't, not saying I'm a failure or I'm a disgrace saying, okay, how can I, how can I dig up? How can right. I get, you know, um, learn from this? And then finally, you know, calling on your people, relying on your positive social support networks. And so it's, you know, it was so fascinating to learn about and it's, <clears throat> it's, Something that serves me serves me well to this day, especially as we talk about space medicine and long duration space flight. I've gone on to write a book chapter on psychological resilience in long duration space flight, looking mm-hmm. at the data from military deployments, submarine deployments, um, Antarctic deployments, um, and then particularly to anyone, even if you don't live in the middle of nowhere in mm-hmm. an isolated, confined, and extreme environment, um, all of us have been thrown into unusual times in the COVID era. Right. Um, you know. The COVID era is an extreme environment. And so learning um, these principles of resilience and saying, well, how can I um, apply these principles? How can I make things better on myself? Um, and, you know, how can I make things better for others? Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. But that's that's where it all started. That was the origin story. Well, I love the story. We'll make sure we have a link um, to the TED Talk. I think it's very compelling and it's led to other uh, talks that you've done uh, specifically on space and medicine. One of the things it reminded me of on your journey, first of all, I love the story about you loading up and going across the world to um, uh, complete your or continue martial arts training with these special operations people and, um, you know, how the instructors would, uh, um, you know, what, what are you doing here? Or at least the way that I remember it and you telling, you know, you're self-deprecating, which I, I loved, you know, what am I doing here with my little arms? I'm a total <laughs> yeah. newbie and you got these yeah. MMA champions and, you know, people who've been fighting their, their intuitions been to f- like physically fight this whole time. But 
I showed up every day that I could show up a couple times a day. And, um, and I just did it. And I think to your point earlier, you know, sometimes you, people don't realize it, but they can learn grit. And I, and I say that with caution. I'm not saying everybody's circumstance is the same. Um, I've not had my physician call me up and say, Hey, I need you to come in and bring your spouse. We need to talk about this picture we just took or, or, uh, you know, law enforcement or somebody show up on my doorstep. Hey, uh, you know, we need to have a conversation and there's, there's some massive event, but you can learn. I've just learned in the military myself from my own journey, going from not having a lot of grit and paying, you know, the emotional expense of it and working through shame and learning the difference between behavior that I don't want to repeat, but not living in shame. Uh, my wife's half Japanese and half Irish and we've had many conversations about some aspects of the culture that she grew up in this a shame culture. In some ways, it's great. Mot- and there's love. I don't mean there isn't love or whatever, but just in these things that can be um, not as helpful. And in particular, coming through COVID, and I see technology that's isolated us from communities and the impact on that instead of being in community and learning how to work together and have grit. And I thought your conversation was was just a very compelling one in that area. Yeah, you know, and it's it's really interesting what you say about um, resilience and, you know, shame-based cultures because that kind of also, um, you know, I've started to, that's not the end of the discussion saying we need to be more resilient. And mm-hmm. we also need to look at the flip side of it saying, well, how is the system based against us? Um, and so in medicine, we joke about it being shame-based learning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, medical residency can be a very difficult and brutal place that has to improve in a lot of areas. And so part of it's saying, I'm going to cultivate my own resilience, mm-hmm. but I also need to knock down barriers in the system to make things better for those who come after me. And it's, you know, the reason is, is a simple one. It's, it's, it should be an intuitive one. It's because, you know, if we're, we're, we're letting a hostile environment or workplace proceed where, you know, I might be able to survive it, but the next person may not. Yeah. They're still my teammate. I'm still sabotaging my team. Right. And if I'm not creating an environment where everyone is, um, you know, poised to succeed, to feel comfortable enough to want to succeed, um, you know, then I'm not setting my team up for success. So that's the other flip side of resilience is that we should be cultivating individual resilience, but we should also be breaking down institutional barriers. What would be some of the examples that you've got in mind uh, just from your background in the medical field? Yeah. So it's it's really interesting um, that when I went through medicine, um, you know, I never, I always thought, you know, this this stuff just comes with the territory where they're talking about really um, <clears throat> horrific um, racial or misogynistic remarks that would, no one would get away with right. in any other setting. And then it's, it's really this bizarre sort of, I'm tough, I can take it. You know, it just means that I, you know, I'm tough enough to be here. Right. And then you look back in, in, in retrospect, you're like, no, that's, right. that's not right. Like how, how blinded was I on success that, you know, I thought it was okay that I had to, you know, um, put up with this, this behavior. And I think I haven't talked about this before, but one of the most, um, horrific things that I'd experienced, um, was someone calling me a member of ISIS because of the color of my skin in the OR. And it's like in surgical training, like a team member would do that or the attending surgeon called me that. And it's sort of like this, you know, that no one should have to put up with that. Right. And it wasn't, there was no, there was no 
reason for it. The the context behind him saying that was I was asked by one of the nurses to say, how would I landmark this incision? And so there's getting a little bit nerdy here, there's a part of the hip called the ACES or the anterior superior iliac spine. Right. Um, so it's the ACES. Okay. And so I said, you you position yourself in relation to the ACES. And then the surgeon unprompted said, ISIS, did you just say you work for ISIS? You work for ISIS. And I was like, would you say that to anyone else? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't. And then, you know, even saying at that point in my career, having been through enough and bringing that up to, to anyone else, you know, program directors didn't care. Um, you know, and it's sort of like, I strongly feel like they should care. And so the learning point here is now that I'm an attending physician, um, in the, uh, emergency room, as well as in clinic, like my, my deal, my contract with my students is like, you will always be protected under me. And if you feel unsafe or unwelcome, we are going to deal with that because medical training is hard enough with all the trauma, with the life and death you see with the, you know, the healthcare system on fire with COVID, um, right. why make it harder? Um, yeah. So that's, you know, part of it is resilience, but part of it is, you know, cutting down the the barriers that don't need to be there. And it's, you know, it's so tough. We, uh, I remember in the service, we were just integrating male and female. Um, not in, I was in a combat infantry unit, but we did a lot of uh, modern infantry. You're either airborne or you're mechanized. And so a lot of the people that would drive with you or, or ride with you, if you're taking troops into the battlefield, um, they could work for at that time. Now they're part of the combat team. But at that time, you might be part of S2, which would be Intel or the, the HR group that supports and make sure everybody's fed or whatever. These soldiers are all put together. <clears throat> and you would see these double standards of um, how, you would, how you would talk to the soldiers differently. And I don't mean like physical limitations. So in other words, there were physical requirements in order to be uh, a, a, a combat infantry soldier. I don't know if it's the same. You had to pass certain physical tests. You had to be able to carry your ammo, your food, your ruck. You had to do it in a certain amount of time. And you're constantly training, male or female. There were no, no females at the time, but even males. If you didn't, if you weren't able to reliably do that and support your team, you couldn't do that. And I don't feel like that sort of... Um, evaluation. If this is a mission, you've got to have a physical thing or intellectual ability to do something. We were talking about tremors before. If you're going to be a surgeon, you've got to be able to do something in a still way. Um, But when you add the element of racism, when you add the element of, uh, even if it's not racism, we, we, I, I ran into a number of times where somebody might be from a part of the country where they were thought of as dumb because they spoke slow and uh, it's just the culture they grew up in. They're g- genius smart, but you were labeled or treated as a certain thing. And I know there's always a certain amount of, hum- you know, throughout all of history, there's some of that. But man, we just, you know, we just don't need to put up with it to accomplish our mission. Yeah. And I, I want to um, delve a little bit deeper into the military example, because it's such a perfect one. Um, so for the longest time, so after I learned about resilience in the special operations world, you know, I'd meet Navy SEALs or, um, you know, special forces, um, uh, or Green Berets um, or, or whatever. And, you right. know, I'd just be curious because I'd say, you know, like, what about women in spec ops? And, mm-hmm. you know, um, universally, the answer was, Unless they can carry a 250-pound teammate on their back and uh, get off the X, you know, that's um, there's no place for them. And for the longest time, I accepted that until I dug a little bit deeper. And mm. 
the, we, this is where the importance of asking why, you know, comes in. Sure. And so, you know, look at body armor. It was not designed for women. Mm-hmm. It was designed not body contour to the female chest. It was putting them, making them uh, unable to move as they should, um, unable to, uh, and it was also exposing them to to more um, trauma from shrapnel or enemy fire. Because there are um, gaps in the gear or Exactly, something? right? Yeah, like the okay. female chest, you know, has to accommodate, you know, the curvature, um, the breast anatomy right. as well. And so, you know, that's, well, what if we made armor that actually fits right. women. You know, what if we take away that barrier? Because now, right now we're asking them to run um, a marathon in, you know, if they're size five shoes and size 11 shoes. Right. Well, how are they going to succeed? Right. It's the same thing with the all-female spacewalk that was supposed to happen in 2019 and then was delayed because the right-fitting um, EVA suit parts weren't uh, ready yet. Right. And, you know, I experienced this when I was doing a Mars simulation at the Mars Desert Research Station. We would go out on our excursions in our spacesuits, but I'd always joke to my teammates, like, um, you know, I should I should have been a man because my shoulders are not <laughs> wide enough to accommodate right. um, the spacesuit. So part of it is like saying, okay, how do I adapt myself to the environment? But right. also how do I make it better and more yeah. efficient um, so that we can perform better? Yeah. And you want the audience to say, even if they say something like I just said, or as you're explaining, he, look, here's what I understood. Hey, I hear what you're saying. Here's what I agree with. Here's what I disagree with. I think you'd be able to have more female candidates or even more male candidates. If you change these things at the end of the day, we want mission accomplishment and troop welfare with people who are patriots for their country that know how to operate between the Geneva Convention and the Uniform Code of Military Justice and accomplish the mission. I agree. Um, Well, if we did this, wouldn't you want people with high integrity and high capability? Some of them are female now. I I, I think it's the, do I have a heart to allow... um, uh, you know, my ideas to be challenged in the tech world. This happened to me about 10 years ago. I'm going to confess and I'm going to look like obnoxious, but hopefully my, um, ability to learn, I was at a, uh, CTO conference in the Bay area, bunch of, uh, entrepreneurial startups, just these really smart folks. And it was a panel of all women CTOs. And they were having a conversation about not so much quotas, but why, if candidates are equal, they would tend to hire a female candidate instead of a male candidate. And afterwards, they were most of them were sitting at my table. I was a panelist on a different panel, but we were there. And I asked them, why, why, doesn't that seem sort of like the same thing as a male saying it, just, you know, different? And they said, you know, maybe what's a, we can see why that might be the appearance. But here's what studies, well-regarded studies of 30 or 40 or 50 years in um, have shown us. In engineering groups, they're dominated by men for whatever reason. They're dominated by men. If you add in a woman into this group team, here's how the team dynamic changes, how it's different than an all-woman team, an all-male team. If you add in a capable woman, either the best or just capable, um, or capable men, this is how the team um, changes. And this is the dynamic of it. And this is in science. It's not, we're trying to maintain quotas. This is obviously we want to give, and I have three daughters. I want them to have every opportunity as well. And so I had to, you know, I, I listened, but I tend to be a skeptic, whatever the topic is. I went back and researched. They were a hundred percent right. I had to repent, but it's because I just, I was like, man, just feels like you're trying to make quota, you know, just get whoever the best candidate is. Sure, but usually it's a range of candidates. And if you're trying to affect a team positively and give more opportunity for more people, 
have an open mind, look at what the data tells you, and then, conf- you know, adjust to uh, fit the new data. Yeah. And, you know, you've said so many important things there. And part of it is, you know, looking at this through an engineering lens again and saying, well, there's not, it's not just going to be one answer versus the other. It's everything's going to be a trade-off study. So maybe the team dynamics will be altered, but what are we doing? We're bringing more perspectives to the table and we're bringing more ways of looking at problem solving. And, you know, if our team is geared towards problem solving, what's the value trade-off? Maybe it is that we want more perspectives to be able to better solve problems. So, you know, there's, it's never going to be, you know, um, we should, you know, we should do this for the sake of this. It's what is the value judgment here? Um, And then the other thing that you, you said a few minutes ago was so important, especially in this global climate as to how do we go about resolving problems is how we approach one another. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, even if we have deferring opinions, um, you know, don't, if if I come at you saying you're wrong Mm -hmm. or you don't have a right to an opinion right off the bat, you are on the offense. You're like, why should I respect you? You don't respect me. But you know, if you come with like, here's my perspective, here's why, um, you know, if you come with the data, come ready to defend your stance, um, but not in a non-argumentative way, but to explain the why Mm -hmm. and, you know, come to a goal of having either uh, the goal of a common understanding or an information exchange. I think that goes a longer way towards um, resolving issues that are seemingly at odds with one another, even if we come from totally different perspectives. Um. I saw this played out beautifully for me, and you just reminded me of it. When I was a kid, I worked at the University of Texas Medical Branch um, in the IT department uh, for um, uh, a teaching hospital, lots of residents. Uh, I don't know if it was fate or the the university that had me working for the Department of Psychiatry. There's probably something uh, um, uh, good that for me to be there. But I met these two gentlemen who were the best of friends. And uh, when I got to know him about a year and a half later, I was having a conversation with them only to learn that one was from Pakistan and the other was from India. And I just thought they had been best friends forever. And they said, no, you know, we became friends here because we have um, similar traditions. We have similar food. Like there's a lot that we have in common, but we come from very different political ideology, religious ideology. There's probably even still tension over Kashmir and these other places. Like like there's real stuff. But the more time we spent with each other, opening up, like, why do you believe what you believe? Why do I believe? And they didn't resolve. It wasn't like they agreed on everything, but they came to love each other and their families were really uh, friendly. They hoped they could continue. They were honest and said, look, if we move back, we don't know, you know, you get caught up in your groups. But it was a great example of... Um, how do I come together, try to understand and then to be understood? Um, I think the people of in around space mission do that as well as anybody. One of the things that I, and I know we're about out of time. I just want to ask you this last question. You had a, uh, you had this comment that I wrote down here. The pain of failure can be a beautiful teacher. Um, and we need to empower people to unlock our potential. So as we wrap up today, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So this comes back to what I was saying about, you know, you can be hard on yourself in a way that's destructive or Mm. a way that's 
productive. And, um, you know, that, that's fine. That sounds very nice. But how do we look at tools that actually help us get to where we want to be? And, you know, through all the operational stuff I do, whether it's piloting a plane, you know, doing something procedural in the ER, um, skydiving, diving, like there's this, this tool that's so um, been so useful in all of these settings. And it's just learning the way to do debrief, the art of the debrief. And, you know, in in the military, what we call them after action reviews, Um, you know, there's so much terminology of it, but the the whole goal is, you know, you looked at your performance in a particular scenario, um, you know, whether it was this whole neurosurgery training period I went through or whether it was a solo flight. And then you say, okay, well, what went well? What didn't go so well? Um, what needs to be improved for next time? And do I need to share these lessons with anyone? Um, and, you know, the idea, even if you had a flight you were super happy with, mm. um, then you still want to debrief because you want to reinforce those patterns of performance that led to your success so you can keep replicating that. And if things didn't go so well, um, well, how do you make it better for next time? And there's, there's, there's psychological research that shows that directed practice is what makes world champions, what makes world-class violinists or athletes. And so, um, you know, focusing on um, failure can be a beautiful teacher, but you have to be open to letting it um, make yourself better Mm. and also um, sharing those lessons because we we all fail. Um, A friend of mine, she's Canada's seventh female fighter pilot, and we were talking about this one day, and she said, if you've never failed, you're either lucky, lying, or Jesus. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we all fail, but there's a way to fail up. I love it. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the conversation today. Shauna, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, I hope you have a couple great talks here at the uh, uh, symposium. I'll be down there listening to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Our great pleasure. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. See you, everybody.